The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from John 15, 9-27. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as his own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things, they they will do to you on my account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary Linda, for reading that passage for us, guiding us through that. If we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. In this text, these sermons from the Last Supper, studies from the upper room, one of the things that's happening is in John's gospel, we're reading all these things that Jesus is saying. And so here in this passage, he kind of neatly divides into two halves a section on love and a section on hate. And we're going to kind of focus on those two things, but what's important for us to remember is that it's all, this is all part of a, of a monologue that Jesus is giving to his disciples as a way of preparing them for what's about to happen. So this isn't just Jesus kind of giving like pithy statements of wisdom throwing things out there for his disciples to take hold of and remember. He's preparing them for something, and it's all connected. 
And so he's been talking about how he's going to be with them, how he's going to send his spirit, how they're, they're going to need to love each other and be united to one another because the bottom's about to fall out. But it's not just that the bottom's about to fall out. It's that he, he is in the process of establishing the church on earth. And so he's preparing his disciples for that. And so in the spirit of all these things being connected, I wanted to open in kind of an unusual way uh, in this message by talking a little bit about um, what's been happening with the church's uh, attendance and giving in the last few months. Because it, it, it relates, and you'll see how it, how it relates here in a minute. So back when this fiscal year started, our church is on a fiscal year, Christ Prez as a whole, so all three of our locations, is a fiscal year that starts, it goes from July through June. And this past fiscal year that we've been in, we're a little past the halfway point now, um, this church has seen a lot of change and a lot of um, disruption, if you will. We, we, have, uh, we have released our senior pastor, and, uh, and what we've seen is that the giving projections over the first, the first half of this fiscal year, our projected giving, we were behind our projected giving by, at, at, at times, like 35%. And it was, it, was, it was dicey, and we weren't sure what was going to happen. And then December hit, and December is one of those months where churches see 25 to 30% of their giving come in in that month. And what happened at Christ Prez in December was that all three locations saw their giving come in above what we projected. And it was pretty amazing. Like it, it, the, the, the way that the congregation responded at the midway point and, and us talking from the front about kind of the financial picture of the church was, it exceeded what anybody thought was going to happen at each location. And then January happened and January is typically the lowest giving month of the year because People do all that giving in December, you know. And um, January was 25% ahead of what we projected as well. And then at the midpoint in February, so after last week's tithes and offerings, we're tracking for February to, to be similar. So that's cool. It gets cooler. Right now, Christ Presbyterian Church has more giving units. I hate that term. It makes people sound like a unit. More, giving, more people giving than ever, uh, which is significant. Like we have more people giving to this church now than we did a year ago, than we did two years ago. What that tells me is that tells me that the people at Christ Presbyterian Church are owning their church. Um, here's another detail that I find to be just beautiful. Is a church our size, made up of three locations with, you know, probably, I don't know, three or 4,000 people that would consider this to be their church home spread between the three campuses, um, <clears throat> is a church that will, will see its budget impacted by significant one-time gifts. So it's it's... 
it, it, it happens from time to time that, that the church will see um, a six-figure gift uh, given, to the, given to the church, um, sometimes more. The large gifts that have been given to Christ Pres this year have been smaller than large gifts given in the past. But our giving is up. And what that tells me is that that's a very healthy thing. Because it means that this church is not riding on the generosity of one or two people. Um, but it is the people of the church giving. And that is a beautiful thing to be seeing right now. From my perspective as a pastor here who trusts in the Lord to provide all the things that we need. And the reason it matters to me is because it can be easy for a church that goes through a season of transition and upheaval and disruption, whatever you want to call it, um, to say to the congregation, here's what we need. We need more giving. We need more people to volunteer and serve. We need more people to, you know, fill these buckets, check these boxes. But that mentality lacks a certain elegance. It lacks a certain grace. Because really what we need, what the church needs, what any church needs, is for the people of the church to say, this is my church. This is my church, and I'm a part of it, and it's a part of me, and I'm part of the body. And when that's happening, all those other things kind of take care of themselves. And we're seeing that happening. And so, and so I wanted to start with that because it actually ties into what Jesus is saying in this passage. And what he's saying in this passage is he's saying to his disciples, you're about to found the church. And it's going to get wild. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen that you, as you understand things right now, are not prepared for. And so I'm giving you these words so that you'll be able to navigate what matters and what doesn't matter. And so he opens this section with this continuation of last week's text in which Jesus is telling his disciples, I will abide with you and you will abide with me and I will abide in you and we will be in a relationship with him in such a way that it'll be a, a, a never separate union with him, that he will always be with us and in us. And in this passage, it opens by tying it once again to obedience and joy, that his presence and our obedience to him and joy are all connected. And it makes sense. It's such a simple lesson and so hard for us to get our minds around sometimes. And the lesson is this. Obedience is a response. It's a response to love. And the law of Jesus, the law that he gives us, that he calls us to obey, he tells you, is a law that leads you to joy. So we obey in response to his love. We obey because the law that he gives us is the path to joy that our hearts long for. His law isn't given to suffocate us. It's not given to lead us to a miserable existence. It's given to lead us into the joy of a right way of relating to him and moving through this world. That's why he gives us, he says, this is how you should live. And then he tells us that it brings him joy when we obey. 
And there's a joy that he wants us to know because we obey that comes from abiding with him. We're abiding with him and we're cooperating. And all of this talk of abiding and joy and obedience in this passage, he ties to love. He says it's part of the experience and expression of divine love at work in our lives. And so I want to just very briefly talk about these two concepts here in this passage. First, we're going to talk about love, then we're going to talk about hate, and then we're going to talk about what this church really needs from its congregation. So this passage has one of my favorite things that Jesus is recorded, one of my favorite things recorded that Jesus ever said. Um, I have favorite things he said. And one of them is this, because I just, I, I find myself turning it over like it's, like it's a, a jewel. He says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I love that statement because it carries so much freight. It's fascinating, and it gets me because there's a twofold application to what he's saying here. The first thing he's saying is he's saying that his sacrifice on our behalf, which is about to happen right in front of his disciples, is the supreme expression of his love. If we ever wonder if Jesus loves us, he's saying you need look no further than the testimony of the cross. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. Which brings us to the second application, and it's the one that really blows my mind. And it's the part that we have to believe if we're ever going to believe that the cross was his supreme expression of love. And it's this, in saying this, he calls us his friends. Jesus calls us his friends. That's pretty great. Like he's saying, and then he doubles down and triples down in this passage in terms of establishing, I mean what I'm saying to you. I consider you my friends. It's not just that he laid down his life for us. It's that he called us his friends in the process. What is a friend? A friend is a person who knows you and loves you and somehow does both at the same time, right? Our relationship with Jesus, he's telling us here, is of a personal nature. It's intimate. It's deep. It's warm. It's comfortable to him in the way that you're comfortable with friends. It's comfortable to him. It's filled with a deep knowing. He knows us. All our quirks, all our interests, all our passions, all the things we fear, all the things that, that electrify us. He knows all those things. And then he clarifies the point. He doubles down so there's no mistake. He says, listen, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. What is the basis of that friendship? He said, I've told you everything that the Father and I talk about. I've made it known to you. I've brought you into this inner circle. All that I heard from my Father I've made known to you. And this is the beautiful privilege of faith. There is a privilege of faith. 
And it's this, that we get to know the will and the word of God. What a great privilege. We get to know the will and the word of God, and we get to know it from God's only son, who happens to love us enough to call us his friends. And then he reminds his disciples, lest they doubt him even still, and feel like, well, okay, but you have to love us, right? Because we're your disciples and you're kind of stuck with us. So I get that you call us your friends, but it's because you kind of have to. No, he says. He reminds them, you didn't choose me. I chose you. So he's not stuck with them. He chose them. He chose them. He is with them and they are with him because he wanted them to be with him and him to be with them. And then what does he say? He says, in this life then that you're living, remember it's all connected, with this life that you're living, I'm going to send you out and your life is going to bear fruit in this world. And the reason it's going to bear fruit in this world is because I'm your friend and I love you and I have a purpose for your life. We share in his mission. He loves us and he fills our lives with both meaning and purpose. And so once he's established that, on that basis he concludes. And he says this, so all these things that I've commanded you, I've commanded you so that you'll love one another too. So love one another too. If we, live in, if we live in him and he lives in us, then we will walk through this life as his friends. And if that's the case, then it follows that we should count one another as friends too. And we should follow then his example by laying down our lives for one another. Laying down our lives, our egos, our privileges, our rights sometimes, our time, whatever it is that we have to offer, that we offer this up for one another because we just cannot help but love one another. And what is the greatest expression of love, full circle? It's that we lay down our lives for our friends. Why is it so important that we do this? Not just that we love him and count ourselves his friends, but that we love one another too. He tells us in the next section when he talks about hate. And what he's saying is you're going to need every bit of love that you can scrape, scrape together in this world. You're going to need every bit of love and friendship that you can find. Because this world is going to hate you. It's going to hate you because you love me. And so you need each other. See, he's not just giving platitudes and teaching about love and hate. He's teaching about it because... They have to then live in this world. We have to then live in this world. And so he transitions then into the topic of being hated, being hated by the world. Let me ask you a question. Are you somebody who tries to never need anybody else's help? Are you somebody who thinks it is shameful or weak to require support, that the thought of ever having your name as the recipient of a meal train is just more than you can handle? Do you think 
that it is weak to ever reveal a need or let alone have a need be met. If this is you, let me gently rebuke you. That is a profoundly unchristian way to live. To say, I'm going to go through this world never needing anything from anybody. It's profoundly unchristian because, first of all, Jesus says, you're wrong. What you need is you need me to go to the cross and die for your sins. That's the starting place. But then also, the Lord in his wisdom and his kindness, he gives us limits. He puts us together in such a way that there are things that you're just never going to be good at. And other people are going to help you with, like taxes, right? That's because God loves us. He loves us, and so he says, you don't get to be the complete picture. You're going to need help. It's loving for him to do that. Why? Because he says in this passage, the reason I'm going to give you limitations and you're going to need one another is because this world is going to hate you. And what you need in a world that's going to hate you because it hated me is you're going to need friends. You're going to need people. You're going to need community. And that's what you're called to be. And so Jesus tells his disciples that this world is going to hate them if they follow him. It's very logical. They're going to hate you if you follow me. And the reason you know that is because they hated me. And so if you in any way are trying to live a life that resembles his, the godless part of this world will despise you and it will respond to you in exactly the same way that it responded to him. That's what Jesus means in his use of the word world here. He's talking to the part of the world that is hostile to God, the enemy. And he says, when the world tries to persuade you, well, no. I want to make sure I say this clearly. This world will try to persuade you to abandon obedience to Christ. The reason it will try to persuade you to abandon obedience to Christ is because it will be demanding your obedience to the world. And it's a world that hates Jesus. And we can't give our allegiance to both. And only one of those loves us. But Jesus says to his disciples, you don't belong to that world. You don't belong to that world. And so here again, look at the twofold application of what he's saying here. The first thing he's saying is he's saying that the godless world that demands your allegiance doesn't love you, doesn't care about you in any way, it hates you. But the second thing he's saying is you don't belong to that world, but you do belong to another world. You belong to a world where Christ reigns and calls us his friends. And he's saying, live wholeheartedly in that world, even in this life, where you are forever loved. Notice how binary Jesus is here when it comes to loving him. He says there are really only two categories. We either love him or we hate him. And we may say, well, that's kind of harsh. 
right? I mean, I can love him, and I can also love the world, and we can be cool and compromise. And no, what he's saying is, listen, to love him is to receive him as he is, to receive him for who he is. To hate him is to deny who he is. It's to deny his lordship over all things. It's to call him a liar in favor of your own preferences. And that's the allegiance that this world demands of us, is you be the center of your universe rather than Christ. And what this world will try to do to get you, well, let me ask you this question. What will this world try to do, try to get you to do if you're willing to deny who Jesus is? It will try to get you to deny who you are too. This is our moment right now. This is our cultural moment. As we live in a world that is insisting that you deny who you are too. How does it do it? It's very insidious. It's you hate yourself by denying that you come from somewhere. You hate yourself by denying that you have a maker, that you have an identity, that you have a specific way that you were made by God himself, as he says in Psalm 139. And then the world will insist, okay now, you have no identity, you, ha you don't come from anywhere, you have a blank slate and you are responsible now to make up who you are. And so the world insists that you come up with a narrative for who you are that has no foundation other than the one that you dream up. And the world will tell you that it is better for you to make up your own identity than to recognize that you come from somewhere. And you will feel the pressure. And you will feel the pressure to do this as a child. At a young age, you will feel the pressure to do this. To obey the world in this way. Because that's what the world is saying. Obey me. Obey this. But here's the problem. The world will not repay that obedience with love. At all. Instead, it will mock you. And it will hate you. And it will turn on you. And declare you to be as worthless as the story it insisted you make up about yourself. Does that feel feeling gross? That's hate. And it's a dirty trick. It's a trick of the devil. He's telling us that Christ is nothing, and so you get to make it all up for yourself. Who among us is up for that task? creating the meaning of existence. Who is up for that task? Who clamors for the task of assigning meaning to this life you've been given independently of anyone or anything else? That's a burden that will bend you to the ground. And you will find there's no love in that. There's no love in the work of making up and then attempting to justify our value in a world without God. Because at the end of the day, in a godless world, the truth is we have no intrinsic value. We are cosmic accidents. Meaning itself has no meaning. 
Jesus is saying, it's one or the other. And what he offers us is the greatest expression of love that a person can offer to a friend, himself, his life. And so he offers this life of inexhaustible meaning and uh, and purpose that is based in perfect love and that is then also proven to us by the greatest expression of perfect love that one friend can offer to another. He offers us his own life. He's preparing them to live in this world after the cross and the resurrection. And we continue to live in that world. He's preparing them to establish the church on earth. That's part of what he's doing here in these verses. He's preparing his disciples to go found and then lead the church, a community of faith that is full of people laying down their lives for one another. We are a church. Christ Pres Cool Springs. And so in light of Jesus telling his disciples about this love and obedience and sacrifice and courage and community, I want to close by speaking briefly to this question. What does this church need from you? What does this church need from you? Let's have a moment of clarity here. Because it can be easy when thinking about what a church needs from its congregation to move immediately to things like money and time and skills and you know, sign up to volunteer. And that lacks imagination. It lacks poetry. So let's take a more elegant approach. The Lord gives you gifts. He gives you resources. He gives you wisdom. He gives you understanding. You have those things. And each person has a different combination of those things and more. Right? And he means, he says in this passage, he means to use all those things and so much more because part of his love for you is that you would live a fruitful life. That you wouldn't just be biding your time, but that you would actually be producing fruit. That's one of the ways he loves us, is he says, I'm gonna do things through you. You're grafted into me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, you're gonna bear fruit. That's part of the way that he loves us. And so here's the question, what if, what if, what if this church was committed to being a church that operates on the conviction that what we really need from each other is an ongoing devotion to believing and resting in the love of Christ and living our lives out from that. That's what the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said when he said, what my congregation needs most from me is my own personal holiness. If that's what we brought to the church, we would want for nothing, ever. And the reason is because we would believe that everything that we have comes from him and is part of how he loves us and that he's equipping us to bear fruit in this world. And this is all we really need from each other, that we would seek the face of Jesus and in so doing, love one another. And if, that, and if it was just that simple, we would never want for anything, ever, seriously. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the ways that you provide for this church, and I thank you that part of the story 
in how you're providing for this church right now is that people are embracing this church as theirs. Uh, that we're not resting on one or two people digging deep into their pockets to keep us afloat so that we can get bigger, but that you're bringing a community together to support each other and to care for one another. And we see it in giving, but we also see it in how people serve and volunteer. We see it in how people show up for things like the Super Bowl party and the women's retreat. Lord, we see, we see how you are at work in our midst knitting us together and making us into a community and giving us the friendship of one another. And Lord, we thank you for that because it can be lonely to live in this world, especially as somebody who's trying to follow you. And so you give us a community of faith and it's a gift and we thank you for it. Father, help us to learn what it means to live in response to your love and to love you and to love one another. Give us discernment and wisdom when it comes to the tactics of the enemy in this world that would seek to tempt us to deny who you are and who we are as a result. And Lord, continue to show us how deep your love runs for us. And we give you thanks for your mercy and grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.